I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where religion meets Jesus Christ face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Well, it's almost year-end, two days before Christmas. Before we get into our message tonight, I want to take uh, a minute and personally thank everybody who's been involved in uh, the ministry and the church um, that we do here, uh, in many cases for years on end. And uh, just everybody's support one way or another, you at home, your prayers, people who support us here, our friends, uh, people who have contributed to the show, to the surroundings, whatever it is, very grateful. Everybody's contributed an enormous amount of time and resources and uh, some prayer through thick and thin, and they've, they've stuck through us, uh, with us through times that are pretty tough. So uh, I want to thank our staff in the house tonight. We have Wendy J and Linda C and Danita W. And uh, they bring a spirit of service and love. They're our operators, a little tad bit of attitude sometimes. Uh, they bring ambiance to the show. I, leave it, I love all of them very much. Very thankful for their devoted service. We have Derek uh, W. D. He's, uh, he's on camera and lights, and Derek is also the unofficial greeter. He meets and greets everybody, has an ability to make friends with everybody, and he and his wife are very uh, supportive, generous people. They are dedicated to the ministry, and um, their love is inspiring. Love them like my own brothers and sisters. Thanks, D&D. We have Kathy M.H., she'll be known as, and Merle H., and Seth. They stay in what we call the cage, and uh, which is probably the appropriate receptacle. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, actually, they're like surgeons, these guys. They are cutting here and sewing there. Sometimes they just throw their hands up and say, it's in your hands, God. Every week, they're the ones who put the stuff out and get it formatted and, and write and get the visuals and the audio and everything. Very grateful for them and their tireless dedication to the cause. Um, especially since they're often wondering what the cause is. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I think they know at heart we do want to serve the God and King we love, Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, and so we seek Him, and uh, that's who they serve, and that's why they're here. But I love them. Thank you all. Um, refreshments have been brought by a number of different people, consumed by others. Larry G., he brings a constant stream of 
uh, of food. And Kathy, uh, Kathy M. H., she, among other things, she cleans the studio uh, every week voluntarily without complaint. She takes care of the kids with Linda on Sunday. She prepares the food and communion. She even takes the trash away in her car. And when Jesus says, the greatest uh, among you will be servants, she sets the bar, in my opinion. But she's stubborn as a jacketh asseth. And uh, she calls me out on my stuff all the time. But this ministry couldn't function without her. And uh, then, speaking of not functioning, I have to mention uh, Derek and Danita again. They do all the orders, the book orders, and everything you guys order comes be in through because of them. They get it out to you. They do all of our church finances, the bills, the taxes, keeping me out of jail. Uh, thank, I really am grateful to them. And then we have Mary, my wife, week in and week out, responsible for the graphics, in addition to managing the ups and downs of being married to me, um, driving me to the airport, picking me up from the airport endlessly, making travel plans, caring for the family, wondering if she's married, an unsung hero, uh, grateful for all she does. I love you, uh, Mary. Cassidy Sean manages all the thousands of emails that come in. She creates the video spots we use on the show. She's been a devout uh, supporter, time and talents. And she makes some key decisions in the ministry. She gives me information and helps me. I'm grateful for her wisdom, knowledge of the Lord. Love her very much. Mallory Lundqvist from Sweden creates music. And uh, for us, from the Word, constant supporter. And Delaney Bell, my youngest daughter. Bottom line is she sacrificed our time together as dad and daughter since she was 11 so that I could be involved. She's now 21 and getting ready to uh, possibly get involved with us full time. So all of these people, and people I haven't mentioned, I'm sorry, but you all mean the world to me. I am grateful at this time of year, just because it's kind of the end of the year. It's not because it's the Christmas time. I'm grateful for you just looking back on everything that goes on, anything, any way that we've had uh, interaction with each other. I thank God for your examples of Christianity for your honesty, for, the, for your being the salt of the earth and, and being real. And uh, we, I wanna, we also want to finally thank everybody, friend and foe, uh, no matter what. We want you to know we love you. Uh, even if you're Calvinists, we love you. And uh, we thank you. Those who have supported the ministry through prayers, financially, uh, sending us information, I know I've gone on and on, but uh, I usually don't do anything like this except at the end each year. And uh, the last to be named, always first in the hearts, the Lord uh, and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and for God so loving us, he sent us his son. And uh, so we hope that we can continue to share him openly with others. Couldn't accomplish anything without him and his patient approbation of the ministry. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we... Uh, we thank you. We pause at the end of this year. One more show, I think, but just to say we love you and uh, we seek to know the truth of things. And I'm going to make mistakes and teach things that are wrong. And, uh, but we are all kind of fumbling through the dark and trying to see what the light is all about. And we just pray you'll help us to do that. Open up our eyes and ears to the truth that you want us to know. Put away the rest, but above all things, love each other. Love everybody as much as we humanly can, 
And um, forgive us when we fail in that, because our, our hearts want to love, Lord, but our, our body and our flesh is weak. So this help us now as we talk about this la- the second to the last segment for the year. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we left off last week talking about hell, what the Bible says about it, what it doesn't. One more show on this, and we're done. Next year, we may have a big surprise to announce next week, and next year is going to be interesting, so we'll see what happens between now and then. Let's wrap up our topic and the, and the year uh, by talking tonight and next week. Tonight's the lake of fire. Last week we proved through Scripture, hell gives up its dead. Hell is not eternal. And then we read about those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are then tossed into the lake of fire. What is this place all about? Well, let's begin by asking, who was this lake of fire, so to speak, created for? Scripture tells us. In fact, in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus tells us that at the judgment of the sheep and the goats, he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. That's the King James, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what the lake of fire is for. It's everlasting fire, the King James calls it, prepared for the devil and his angels. Take note that the place the King James calls uh, a place of everlasting fire was not prepared for men and women. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. To me, if something wasn't not prepared for human beings, but was prepared for heavenly creations that have fallen, it may not have the capacity to even hold people forever and ever. Sort of like a gorilla going into a nursery or something. I mean, how long could the nursery hold a gorilla? Not for very long. So it wasn't made for the gorilla. A nursery was made for children. So maybe there's something like that. Additionally, there are some believers who think that the lake of fire, uh, Satan and his angels have already been cast in there and they're living there presently. Scripture suggests otherwise. Ephesians 2.2 says, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And 1 Peter 5.8 describes him as a roaring lion walking about. Additionally, Revelation 27 and 10 tells us that Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. So I think we are mistaken to believe he is there now, but he could be. I don't know how temptation works that. Finally, we speak of the lake of fire. Where is it located? Where is this lake located? We all think synonymously it's where hell is. Lake of fire in the place of hell. Not at all. I'm going to tell you where it is. Revelation 14.10 says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. This is King James. And they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark in his name. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's where this lake of fire is. It's in the presence of Jesus and his angels. It's not down below. It's in the presence. And the fire is probably created by his light. That's burning them somehow, or burning away, or purging away. So, 
Are we to think that those who get tossed into this lake, which is in the presence of the Lamb and His angels, are burning forever and ever and ever and ever, and Jesus is there in the presence watching this, and He likes it? Is, is this a place where He's like, yes, burn, baby, burn. You are against me, burn. I mean, not at all. It, we've taken it all wrong. It's a lake of fire because those who go into it, they, they can't handle the light. It's simple as that. In any case, some Christians like to speak of real burning in flames and eternal suffering in the lake of fire. I would like to suggest that they are really speaking of the King James descriptions of the lake of fire. And we're going to get to that tonight. So I think it's fair to say, in summary, of all we've talked about, hell is not the lake of fire. The lake of fire was prepared for Satan and his angels. The lake of fire is a future experience for those who have been in hell, came out, discovered that their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. The lake of fire is in the presence of the Lamb and his angels. And according to the King James uh, Revelation 14.10, those in the lake of fire will, to quote scripture, drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. They shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, that the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Again, according to the King James, they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now all that, now we understand why people say, it lasts forever. This is what we're talking about. Lake of fire is where no one gets out and it goes, the smoke goes up forever and ever. So Revelation describes what the lake of fire really is. It says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Here it is. This is the second death. That is what the lake of fire is. Okay. Every human being experiences the first death. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. We all experience the first death. But not everyone will experience this second death. Apparently it's only going to be those who are cast into the lake of fire. And again, who are these? Those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Okay, we have all that down. Now, let me pause here for clarity's sake, and really quickly, a little bit of repetition, but I'll do it fast. Since hell will give up its dead, we cannot say and be correct that hell is eternal. So let's wipe that out of our talking points together. Hell is not eternal. And any Christian should be able to say that, and everyone go, that's right, it's not. Let's just clear that up right now, Okay. No matter how tormenting or dark we think the holding tank will be, in the end, everybody will be brought out of that place and stand before the uh, great white throne and see if their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Obviously, some people who have gone to hell will come out and see their name is written in the Lamb's book of life and will go bypassing the lake of fire right into heaven. This is how it's all written. Second, if those who come out of hell whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life they will be cast into the lake of fire created for them. No. Created for Satan and his angels. Yes, the lake of fire was not created for man. Got all that? So some questions. 
First, is the lake of fire experience for humans who enter therein eternal, everlasting, or is the fire just everlasting? Is the fire and the light always burning and ascending up forever and ever? But is their experience in it, in torture, the thing that's everlasting? Reading the King James and probably the NIV and the ESVs, because these are not literal translations, we're presented with English words that tend to say in absolute terms, yes, lake of fire suffering is eternal, everlasting, forever and ever. Let me offer some examples. In the King James, Matthew 5, 20, 25, 41, Jesus describes the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. See that, King James? Revelation 20, 10, King James, speaking of those who enter the lake of fire, says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You read that in the English, King James, you say, McCraney, you're nuts. It's right here. Read it, okay? These passages believe us, make us believe that uh, the, the, the torment is going to be eternal. And it's because of verses like this that Christians make the claim. And if the King James translators were correct in the way they translated these passages, then this idea is sound and I should shut up about this. But they weren't. They were not correct. They were wrong. Here's the gig. Where we have found the word eternal, everlasting, in passages forever and ever in the King James, the more literal translations of the Bible, Young's, Weymouth's, Rotherham's, Concordant New Testament, we have translations that all say something different about punishment after this life. They all agree. And they disagree with what the King James says. Why is that? Let me give you some examples first. King James 25, 46. It says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The literal translations say, And these shall go away into Aeonian punishment, but the righteous into Aeonian life. Okay? Or, These shall go away into the punishment of the ages, but the righteous into the life of the ages. Um, so, or these shall go away into the punishment age during, but the righteous to uh, life age during. You may say, so what? I mean, it just means the same thing. It doesn't. And what is the deal with this focus on age abiding versus punishment of the ages versus eternal punishment like the King James says? It all comes down to the Greek noun, aeon, and its adjective, aeonus. Those two words. In the, stay with me, this is very important. In the King James, which takes this Greek word, aeon and aeonus, and translates it forever and ever, the literal translations translate it for the age. Okay? What is an age? It's a period of time. It has a start and it has a finish. Okay? So the noun aeon means age. Uh, period. A specific period of time. It begins and ends. What's really intriguing is when we get to the adjective for aeon, 
because the translators actually assign the opposite meaning of age when the adjective is used. And so instead of it being a period of time, they translate the adjective into meaning without end or beginning forever and ever and ever. This is a dubious move they've made at best of, of creating the adjective from the noun and giving the adjective the absolute opposite meaning. I can't say that I can say this because the adjective does not work in many passages of the New Testament. Let me put it to you another way. When we take the Greek word aeon and its adjective, we know that we have a given meaning, a root word of age, okay? Every time. Every time the Greek term is used, it ought to be translated into an age-related period of time. It's like the Greek word for teeth, odus. Whenever we see odus, the scripture should say teeth. It shouldn't say shoe. It shouldn't say vacation. It should say teeth, because that's what teeth is in Greek, odus. So you're going along the manuscript that says odus. A good translator is going to say, oh, teeth. Let's put teeth there. But the King James translators, when they came to Aeon and Aeonus, they said, hmm, well, this is troubling. We need to come up with a word that makes this more emphatic to go along with the doctrine that we have today about hell, which came from Augustine, and I'm going to talk to you about in a second. And so age punishment doesn't seem to make sense. Let's make it eternal. Let's make it forever and ever. And so they did. So that's why we have disparity between the King James translators calling age-abiding punishment eternal, that the smoke ascends up forever and ever in the King James, for the literal translations will say the smoke... Uh, ascends up age unto age. Okay, you might think it's splitting hairs. Stay with me. In the case of aeon, instead of remaining true to the definitional root of the Greek word age, the King James translators took aeon and aeonus and subjectively translated to the word into a whole bunch of various English terms depending on the passage. Why would they do this? Because they were intent on maintaining doctrinal purity that clouded and, and colored the way they were going to translate that Bible. Now, in most cases, this proved beneficial and it was congruent. But in the case of eternal punishment, we have a fail. And that is where, that is why all of this, we put so much emphasis on trying to discover what this is about. So along comes these other scholars, Rotherham and Young and Weymouth, and instead of translating Greek words into English words that they thought would fit best, they just simply said, aeon means age, put age there. Uh, Odus means tooth, put tooth there. Don't try to kind of figure out what it's supposed to say. Just give us the literal translation from the Greek. Therefore, Rotherham and Friends translations read consistent regarding the Greek. And every time we come across the Greek word aeon or aeonus, we find age-related definitions. But with the King James and others who took up the cause to preserve doctrinal purity, we are presented with prejudicial confusion. So consider this. The King James translators, instead of ever translating aeon or aeonus into terms of the English word age, a period of time with a beginning and end, 
They translate the term 197 times using all of the following English words instead of age. For the noun aeon, they use the English words ever, world, never, evermore, and course. They just decided, forget age, let's put world and ever and never. Ever and never. These are two different words. Evermore and never. It's crazy. And then for the adjective, they translated the Greek word aeonos, eternal, 42 times, everlasting, 25 times, world, three times, and ever once. Only twice out of 197 times were these two specific Greek terms, aeon and aeonos, translated in accordance with the correct defined definition, age. Only twice. I mean, the exact same Greek word aeon in the King James uh, version is translated eternal in one place and is translated never in another and is translated world in another. So there are 42 places in the King James where the Greek word aeon is translated world, okay? That's why when we read Jesus talking about the end of the age, which is the Jewish age, they put world. And so people today read the scripture and it says, and Jesus says, this will be the end of the world. Oh, we better look for all this stuff now. If they would have just translated it using the proper word for, uh, for age there, it was, and Jesus said, this is the end of this age, and we would have gotten that it all happened. But instead, the King James guy said, let's put world there. Why world? Cosmos is the Greek word for world, not, a, not aeon. But when the Greeks said aeon, they put world. Very, very confusing. So by reading these literal translations, we discover that the Bible from the Greek literally does not teach eternality of the lake of fire, but age abiding fire. A period of time for a certain period of uh, or, or, or reason. And the smoke ascends up unto the ages of ages, not forever and ever. Using the Greek properly, we would read the following passages like this. God has a purpose of the ages. Ephesians 3.11. He is the king of the ages. Well, this bothers some people. No, he's the king of eternality. It says he's the king of the ages. That's how you want to translate it. He prepared the ages by his word. Hebrews 11.3. Again, why did the King James translators use words like eternal and everlasting in their descriptions of hell instead of words related to age and ages? Because by the time King James uh, had his translators put the thing together, St. Augustine's notions that people had to have their flesh consumed by fire and flames had completely rooted themselves in the Christian mindset. And King James said, listen, translate the best of your ability but uphold current doctrinal positions in your translation process. And so as a means to support that thinking that Augustine hated his flesh because he was a sexual dude, he loved sex, and he couldn't stand the fact that, that was, he, was, he was all about that. So like, I forget what century it was, fourth or fifth, I think. Augustine comes up with all these ideas of how the flames have to lick away the flesh and just torture the flesh forever and ever and ever. That took hold. And pretty soon, by the time King James comes around in the 1600s, translators say, we better make sure people understand that hell is eternal and eternal. Now I'm going to start making my arguments from the Greek. This will, this will work. 
there are two very simple Greek words that would have cleared this whole thing up if they'd ever been used in association with punishment. Akatalos uh, and aparantos are the two words. Both clearly mean endless. All any writer had to do is use akatalos or aparantos in a description of hell or the lake of fire, and I would not have a leg to stand on because those words mean endless. Let me give you an example. 1 Timothy 1.4, it says, Paul speaks of endless genealogies. That's akatalos in the Greek, okay? If that had ever been used for the lake of fire or hell, I couldn't, I couldn't argue it. That word's used, that's, it means endless. Never used, okay? And if you go to Hebrews 7.16, it speaks of the power of an endless life. The word is aparantos, endless. Neither of these clear terms used to describe eternal endlessness are ever used to describe hell or the lake of fire. That would have solved the problem, okay? Want more? The word immortal, athanatos, and immortality, aptharsia, also indicate never endingless. Listen, none of these clearly defined terms which denote eternal and endless are ever assigned to hell or the lake of fire. Only age is. There's a reason for that. One more or more, there are two simple and prevalent adverbs in the New Testament which would have made the argument decisive regarding punishment being eternal. A, which means always, and pantote. Pantote means evermore, always, pantote. But again, neither of them are ever used to describe damnation, hell, or lake of fire. You want to know something really interesting? The super strong Greek phrase, to the uttermost, okay, is used only once. And does it describe hell or the lake of fire? No. The punishment in the lake of fire? Nope. It describes God's ability and willingness and desire to save us. That's, what, that's the only time pantote is used. And it's ascribed to him and his desire and willingness to save us. Listen to this. It's in Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Pantote. Only time it's used in the whole New Testament. To the uttermost. He is able to save them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. Pantote again, twice in one verse. He lives forever living to make intercession for those who come to God through him, through Christ. See, so what we've done is we've taken some words and they always describing God, always reaching, always reaching, always forever reaching to the uttermost to bring people to his son, and yet we don't have it ever assigned to punishment or hell. You know, I had a conversation with Cassidy, my middle daughter. She made an interesting point today. God seeks to be in relationship with us. If you want to be in a real relationship with a person, and you really want to be in a relationship, what kind of God would you be if you said, you've only got this much time to be in relationship with me, and when that's done, it's bye-bye, fathead. We are not having any more attempts at relationship once this time is done. That's not the God I know. The one I know is described in uh, Hebrews 7.25. He's forever reaching to have relationship. 
I mean, just think about that. When you care about somebody, you'll go forever to try to reach them and have that relationship. And we are crappy fallen human beings. We're talking about God who is love. How long will he try to have relationship with us? What kind of God says only for a little while and then you're done? No, he ever liveth to make intercession for those who comes to him. Pantote, Jude 25 says, the glory of Christ shall last to all the ages. Okay, the glory of Christ shall last to all the ages. Had this been applied once to all the ages to punishment, argument would almost be done. It's not, ever. The Greek phrase for perpetuity could also have been used to describe the lake of fire and punishment, but it's only used to describe God and his ultimate sanctification of all people for perpetuity. Listen, no Greek word that is ever truly used to describe forever, forevermore, evermore, always, endless, to the uttermost, is ever connected to punishment. Ever in the whole Bible. No Greek word ever used to describe those things, but the terms that are related to age are. Now, there's a reason. I want to conclude with a statement from the book, The Vocabulary of the Greek Testament. It's edited by James Hope Moulton and George Milligan. It says this, talking about the Greek word aeonus. In general, the word depicts that of which the horizon is not in view. Page 16. If the horizon of the extermination spoken of by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is simply not in view, then we can see that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.22 can truly occur. That was when he says God will bring all things in and he will become all in all. The same all who are dying in Adam, which includes some who incur Aeonian extermination, can indeed eventually be vivified in Christ. The Bible, in fact, does not speak of judgment and condemnation, death and destruction, hell and Gehenna, or any of these serious consequences of sin as unending. It may refer to them as not having an end in view, But none of these fearful works of God can keep him from achieving his will, 1 Timothy 2, 4, reconciling all through the blood of Christ's cross, Colossians 1, 20, and him becoming all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Before we open up the phone lines, let's just open them, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. I want to just turn to the Psalms really quickly. To me, the heart of God shines through the Psalms when I read them. And in light of all we've talked about over the past few shows, maybe they'll strike you in the same way. There's about six of them. Let me read them. Listen to what they say. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Interesting. Psalms 22, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he is governor among the nations. Psalms 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Psalm 62, uh, 65, 2, O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. I don't know how you read it, 
Psalm 68, 18, thou hast ascended on high and thou hast uh, led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts from men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Psalms 89, 11, the heavens are thine and the earth is thine also. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. Psalms 86, 8-10, Among the gods there is none like thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wonderful things. Thou art God alone. And of course, this isn't a psalm, but let me end with a passage from the Old Covenant, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved. All ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed." Didn't Paul say love never fails? If love never fails, can he ever fail ever to bring about his goodwill and pleasure in spite of our failures, in spite of Satan, in spite of darkness that continues to uh, consume the light? Doesn't the word say death will be swallowed up in victory? Doesn't this mean the second death too? I think so. I mean, does Jesus only cover the first physical death or does his atonement cover the second? I have Christians all the time say, but God is just, God is just. And I can't help but agree. And because he is just, because he so loved the world, he sent his son to save it. And a son who not only saved all men, but a son before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Did you know what James, the brother of the Lord uh, Jesus said about God's justice and mercy? James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. God is certainly just, my friends, and, he, and we will reap what we sow, but his mercy endures forever. We'll stop here, open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. We have a new video. This is a very intriguing video uh, to show you. And we'll come back, take your calls, and read some emails. Let's see it. Do you ever feel like life is passing you by? Feeling depressed or unsure? Does it ever seem like all your deeds are inadequate? Feeling guilty and alone? Helenot may be right for you. Helenot is a safe, over-the-air cure. Helenot is not a narcotic or sterile drug. It can be taken through the heart or soul. Some of the side effects of Helenot include decreased depression, watery eyes, a wonderful sense of joy, and feelings of burdens being lifted. In some clinical tests, Helenot was found to give people a sense of assurance and security. Those that took Helenot found that they were not afraid of death and certain that heaven would be their destiny. Helenot should not be used by anyone who does not feel that God's grace and love is sufficient, or by anyone who believes that they can earn their way into heaven based on merit or worth. So ask yourself if Helenot is right for you. There is a cure for eternal punishment. Helenot is not affiliated with any denomination or church. Those that have not used Helenot experience burning sensations and visions of pitchforks and horned men with tails. 
Helena is simply a decision to ask God to forgive your sins and ask Him to live and dwell in your heart. For more information, please pray and ask God for help. Five doses of Helenot before the show. I'm very much at peace. Hey, thanks to Seth, uh, uh, Seth for creating that. He said he was driving and that came to him. He created that thing. I thought it was great. So uh, good job, Seth. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, it's probably going to have a short time. In fact, we might even cut the show short because I doubt anybody's watching this tonight with one day to Christmas. Um, Ordelia, if all are saved, why try? Oh, gosh. Uh, really quickly, several problems with this entire question. All are not saved. <laughs> Just get that straight. There are people who are going to hell. There's people who are going to the lake of fire. They're going to, God is through his love. Look at, we can, we can go through hell here and the lake of fire here. As we tap into the vine, he purges us. It's difficult. This is going through the same type of thing, and he does it out of love. He purges us. He tries us. He tests us. It's difficult. Or we can go through it there. I mean, I think there is much more difficult because you don't have the sun. So, and then why try? Don't try. So the question is, if all are saved, why try? Why are you trying? Religion says try. Give it that old college try. Jesus did the trying, you know, if you will. We are not called to try. Uh, listen, we are called to die. We're not called to try. We're called to die to ourselves. You know, we're not to try to just really be good. We're, we're called to die to the thing in us that says, I'm not going to be good and to live to Christ. It's not to try, it's to die. So the whole idea is so unfortunate that really esteemed and mature Christians talk about this trying and earning and making it so much. It's about when you die to yourself, he comes in, he takes over, and he gives you the peace, and he kind of cruise through. So I hope that makes some sense. Did death, illness, and awful things happen in the world because... Adam and Eve disobeyed. Yes. Yes. That is the answer. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things that helped me see the fallacy of Mormonism, which taught that it was a good thing that Adam and Eve disobeyed. That way they could learn to have sex and therefore bring children into this earth who are waiting up in heaven to get bodies, that it was a good thing they disobeyed. And one of the first things that dawned on me as a Christian was, it's a good thing that they disobeyed, but their disobeying brought in dis disabilities, handicaps, disease, murder, torture of children. A good thing? So, good question, but that's my answer. I think that's biblically sound. Had someone asked, so with your views on eternal punishment, do you think Joseph Smith will someday be with God? Yes. Yes, I do. Of course I do. I think Hitler will too. I think everybody is going to bow and their tongue will confess and they'll, you know, they're going to get what they, you know, kind of didn't earn, but they're going to get what they focused on. And Hitler probably had everything purged away or is having everything purged away from his soul and he might be left with not much, if anything. And hopefully Christians, you know, we die, we don't get that purging. We've been purged and because of the uh, grace of Christ. So, you know, I'm going to tell you a true story that kind of came along with me learning about uh, eternal punishment. I have a very good friend. I'm going to call him 
Uh, I'm terrible. When this, when this happens, I almost say their name every time I say I'm going to call them. I'm going to call him Kelly because I am kind of see Kelly in my vision. So I'm going to call him Kelly. Kelly had a daughter. Kelly was a pastor. And Kelly, as a pastor, began to teach that God does not punish people forever and ever. And he started to use the Bible like I'm doing. And I met Kelly, and he's the one who kind of enlightened me to this. I didn't believe him. I challenged him. And, and so I spent some, a few days with Kelly. And his daughter uh, was uh, going through life. And some guy and his friend uh, walked up to Kelly's daughter and shot her in the head. Killed her right there, you know. And so as Kelly goes on and he's preaching years later about how hell is not eternal, and some other Christians said to him, yeah, well, you really haven't had anybody really do anything terrible enough to you where you want it to be eternal. And he said, yeah, yeah, I have. And the, and the, and the guy who killed my daughter, I know he's going to be with God after this. It's all a perspective. I mean, I really learned a lot from Kelly from this because I learned that God's love, when it gets inside you, even someone who killed your child, you have the ability to say, God is going to bring them out and bring them around and bring them back to him and reconcile them to him. I am not preaching no punishment. I'm not preaching that the bad guys and bad ladies aren't going to have a place to come to terms with God, to come to Jesus' meeting and, and all that. And I am preaching the joy of being a Christian now. But we got to get around this obstacle, I think, as Christians, before anybody's going to say this makes some sense. Until we can say, God is just, he has a plan, but he has known all this from the beginning and he's working it through, we're not making any sense, in my opinion. And that's, a, that's definitely a true story. So uh, I've noticed you don't talk so much about Mormonism anymore. What's up? We're going to go to Mark in Sugar House in just a second. I came out astounded by the uh, deceptions of Mormonism. You know that, uh, especially when compared to the Bible. And so then I fully embraced, uh, you know, kind of a Calvary Chapel, biblical Christianity. And I thought, wow, you know, we're a big body of believers. We all agree on everything. And uh, then I've just been astounded by the malarkey passed along by biblical Christian churches and the stuff that goes on. So the question is, how, how can I pick on the LDS when the local churches play similar games? And, uh, you know, so I decided to investigate with eyes wide open the Christian story, the party line. And as with Mormonism, there's cracks and I think some of them, we try to talk about them. I came to see Christianity from an entirely different perspective now. And now I spend my time trying to show the unique views that are not unique to me. They're unique to a lot of Christians. They just don't, aren't in a position to share them. And I happen to still be. Let's go to Mark and Sugar House. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. Hey, you didn't mention any negative side effects to that Helenot, like the uh, rashes, dry skin, body parts falling off. I guess that's a good thing, though. Maybe hysterical after. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my uh, comment is about, I've always dealt with the issue of hell. I'm, a, I'm not someone who takes the Bible very literally. I've always taken the position, well, for a long time, that when we use these, when Jesus, the Bible uses these figures of speech, 
whether it's outer darkness or flames, they're referring to imagery of something, a negative thing, right? Yeah. But from the beginning of the Bible, there is a concept presented about separation from God. So I've always taken it very serious, separation from God. And when people say, well, what about judgment? I say, well, there's a choice to be with God or not be with God. <clears throat> yeah. And I wonder, that's been sufficient for me for a long time. I've understood it that way, and that's been a good enough. But if you, maybe it's because I've never really understood these Greek things and our translations, you know, they kind of use the words you talked about. If you would be willing to jot your notes down, I'd love to pick them up and research it more, you know, at campus or something sometime. But what do you think about the idea of just not over-literalizing these things? I think it's a good idea. You know, I mean, you can over-spiritualize things and make them like Jerome did and make them say all kinds of stuff they don't say. But I think when we take uh, many passages, literally, we're just being fools. You know, how can we understand them? How can we understand Revelation? How can we understand outer darkness? I mean, you've got to kind of really turn on the simpleton uh, switch and say, that means, you know, we walk by faith. We trust in God. I really like what you said, though, Mark, when you, when you pointed out, listen, there's people who want to be with God and there's people who don't. And I would imagine in time everybody will want to. And so I'm kind of clear. I like how you've put that. And I think I, and I do believe it's the individual's decision uh, when they're in the in let hell and the lake of fire to remain there. And I think those who choose uh, to give wave the white flag will confess and bow and uh, truly from the heart and God will reconcile. I believe in that God. I, 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 I. So thank you right. for your insights, Mark. And I appreciate you and uh, what you're trying to, you know, that you are researching this. Uh, with all your heart. And so we'll talk again. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I got nothing else, and who wants more? We're about to go into the holiday season. So we're going to wrap it up. We'll see you next week, and uh, we're going to wrap up the year maybe with a really cool announcement. We'll see you then here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind and I won't be coming out I'm going this man's awake a storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel.